Hello, you're listening to the podcast version of ACFM on Navara Media. Unfortunately, because of the way copyright works with the internet, the version you're listening to only has the conversation and discussion from the show. The music and archive material is only available in the version you can stream online. So really, you're only getting half the picture or seeing through a glass darkly or on a really weak dose. Why not head over to the Navarra Media website or our SoundCloud where you can stream the whole thing in its glorious fullness. Uh, the link is also in the description of this podcast version too. But if you just want the chat, keep on listening. The first women's meetings were a kind of revelation, switching on a light. I didn't think about it that everything fell into place. So it did feel like a very dramatic transformation. But from there, what followed was a bit more complicated sometimes. Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Kia Milburn and today I'm joined by a couple of weirdos. My very strange friend, Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And my odd and oh, quite peculiar friend, Nadia Idle. Hiya. Today, we're going to raise your consciousness by talking about oh, consciousness raising. We also have something new for you today. As well as the usual discussion, you will hear clips from an interview that Jeremy conducted with Mika Nava. Mika got involved in the women's liberation movement in the UK in the late 1960s and has participated in feminist consciousness raising groups since that time. We basically thought Mika could provide a perspective on this topic that uh, me, Jeremy and Nadia might struggle to provide. Okay, let's get stuck in. Let's get stuck in with the usual questions, really. Uh, why are we interested in consciousness raising? And why do we think consciousness raising is relevant to acid Corbynism, acid communism? Jeremy? Well, again, in... Uh the now, you know, very famous uh, little half-finished essay by Mark about acid communism. He uses this really wonderful phrase, um, consciousness inflation, and he counterposes that to consciousness deflation. And he says, basically, you know, the aim of radical politics is to inflate consciousness. And, you know, what that's counterposing the work of sort of neoliberalism or other oppressive ideologies in deflating consciousness. But this is all really riffing on the fact that at the kind of high moment of cultural and political radicalism the late 60s and early 70s there's a sort of there's a convergence between a number of different uh, movements and tendencies so on the one hand there's psychedelic culture and its explicit commitment to uh, what it calls consciousness expansion and that's an idea that goes back at least to the early 50s, this idea that psychedelic drugs do something called expanding your consciousness, whatever that might mean. So we can talk about that. Uh, and at the same time, uh, from about 1966 onwards, uh, various uh, tendencies and organisations that are part of uh, the new left and the kind of radical movements uh, for, black, for black power, for women's liberation and then for gay liberation, all uh, use this phrase consciousness raising um, at times to refer to part of their political practice um, and all the and these things all converge so there's a kind of you know there's hippies and acid heads wanting to kind of you know envision a new way of being in the world you know with the technological assistance of you know psychedelics and yoga etc and then there's also uh, sort of you know social revolutionaries wanting to wanting to envisage a new world through 
reorganizing society and there's a, a lot of kind of uh, circulation between those things which is um you know is really what defines the idea of the counterculture so and obviously acid corbinism is about trying to take some of those ideas and insights and analyses and think about what they might mean within out of contemporary political moment so i think that's why we're interested in the idea of consciousness raising because consciousness raising was a key part of that uh, set of practices which we're sort of partly inspired by and raises a set of questions that we want to try to think through a bit i think also related is the concept of capitalist realism and this idea of being stuck inside a bubble where you can't see a possibility of a way out. And the reason why that's relevant for talking about consciousness raising is that, just as you were saying, Jeremy, when you think about the possibility of, you know, taking certain drugs, but also certain political practices as changing your viewpoint about what is possible, we're interested in the practice of consciousness raising in the neoliberal liberal reality that we live today in terms of how it can make people see the possibility of being different sorts of people outside this kind of experience that they have um, and, and how that very consciousness could potentially help people break through in a collective sense. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I mean, in, in some ways, it's strange that we haven't talked, we haven't had an episode, we've, we're on episode five, and we've, we've, this is the first episode about consciousness raising, because it has been like central to how we've been thinking about this. But it, but it does make me think about, um, you know, it's, it, what is the relationship between consciousness raising and acid and the acid bit in it? Why, why are we linking these things up? You know, why, why, why did Mark Fisher link these things up? The way we've been thinking about psychedelic culture and in fact, like psychedelic experience, we've been thinking about them as like denaturalizing tools, tools to denaturalize existing categories, you know, existing social structure or, or just to denaturalize, you know, your life to make them the way you live your life seem, you know, one possibility amongst a whole range of other possibilities you know that and that's one of the 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 effects that um people talk about about taking psychedelics is that you know things which seem solid can now seem changeable and malleable etc so like we, we could sort of think about well you know is that what people are looking for in consciousness raising practices you know a consciousness raising groups acid in that sense is that they they denaturalize the world and if they do denaturalize the world you know how do they do that what is the techniques and technologies that do that i think that's really i think that's right that you know i mean acid is denaturalizing uh, but the other th- uh, and consciousness raising is denaturalizing but it's also it also de- it, it denaturalizes something really specific as well which is the the experience of the self as a kind of autonomous you know, individual you know private subject disconnected from others i mean i heard someone on some american just lefty podcast just a couple of weeks ago make this remark and the remark was they, they were slagging off some conservative who would uh you know presenting it as some great revelation that they'd realized that like oh, that oh, people are all connected to each other and the the person on this podcast said, "Oh well, you know, if that guy had taken acid as a teenager in high school, like any like every normal person, then he'd he'd have had that banal, you know, moral truism, you know, sort of brought home to him years ago." I mean, that is the uh, that was historically, classically supposed to be the psychedelic idea. That's supposed to be the in, the insight you get is that well, actually, you're not you're not just a kind of isolated subject, you know, detached from the rest of the cosmos. And and I think that's exactly what consciousness raising 
men specifically in those contexts like you know women's liberation black power gay liberation it meant realizing that symptom what you had thought of as being just symptoms of you know your personal circumstances or you'd experienced in that way were actually social and that they could and that the way in which to change those you know to overcome the problems you were experiencing was through sort of collective work with other people so collective sometimes you say collective struggle but also just the phrase collective work gets used for example in a in gay liberation i know quite in quite interesting ways and i think in some ways it, it raises an interesting question though actually about well what in relation to what nadia said about capitalist realism because in some ways capitalist realism is quite a simplistic notion of ideology it's this notion that well you just can't imagine any alternative that like you can't even conceptualize a possible alternative to the way things are now and the implication then is we're well, just becoming aware that there are historical political alternatives to the way things are now is going to do the kind of liberating trick and in some ways that's repeating you know that's quite a very old idea in sort of radical politics but it's often been counterposed by a slightly different idea which is that well actually you might well know that things as they are now are bad and you might even know that hypothetically they could be different but you might not feel any real capacity to engage it with you know in a project of of changing it and so i think and certainly i mean that is the shift i think from just thinking in terms of capitalist realism to thinking in terms of consciousness raising and consciousness inflation is that you know consciousness inflation is partly about you know developing a kind of real felt sense of your capacity to work with other people to change things i mean it is a really interesting question like to talk about today in relation to consciousness raising the, the history of these debates over the nature of ideology and they come up again and again and again you know in every phase of radical politics like well is it that people just don't know shit do they just not know are uh, they're being exploited like capitalism's bad or is it that they do know that but they just feel like well, there's nothing you can do about it doesn't you know it can't really be changed before we move on i just want to ask for a bit of clarification because i'm not entirely sure i get what you guys were were uh, meaning when you said naturalized you know we we tend to we tend to fall into uh, the lives that we live and the and the sort of you know the social relations uh, that we're embedded with we tend to mistake them for eternal and natural occurrences rather than the end you know their end point of a whole series of historical and social forces do you know what i mean uh so the, yeah so we tend to build up a, we, we we build up a natural picture of the world uh, that is actually quite hard to get out of and one of the one of the first things that you need to do if you're going to think about changing the world is to realize that it's changeable why was consciousness raising and consciousness raising groups so vital to second wave feminism you know it was because they had to denaturalize the 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 concept of what a woman was um uh, and what their their capabilities were they had to denaturalize this this you know received idea that they lived in do you know what i mean they had to denaturalize they had to take their uh, their lives and discuss them in order to to realize that something dip something a different way of living was possible do you know what i mean so and so the reason it's related to, to acid is that you know the the experience of taking psychedelics i have been told is that um is that it, you know that you see things from a different angle and things which seem solid seem less solid all of a sudden 
All right, so unsurprisingly, it seems we often keep coming back to this music from the early 70s, which is this high point of kind of radical consciousness, I think, that does get expressed through the kind of revolutionary music of the period. Gil Scott Heron, I mean, in some ways, his work is the kind of epitome of that moment, and uh, his song The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, a direct exercise in, you know, musical, lyrical consciousness raising in itself, uh, and still a classic before we we uh, you did this uh, this great interview with with Mika which we're going to talk about Jeremy um sort of it, it it kind of sat feminist consciousness raising groups sat with me as some kind of like amazing folklore of this reality of this time where women got together in you know small groups in people's homes and talked about the reality of their everyday lives and and it was through that experience of talking about you know the relationship to their husbands, the relationships to housework, the relationship to uh, their children, to all of these sort of experiences that they realised as individuals that their problems um, or their stresses or their antagonisms were not individual. There was something that a lot of other women were experiencing and therefore understanding that those problems must be structural and understanding therefore that to break through and to change and to liberate themselves from those um situations it had to be a collective experience it had to be a, a collective project and so to me a lot about that is fascinating um but i'm interested in the fact that it was an actual deliberate exercise that a group of people in this case women and i think we'll talk about why it's important that it was women in this situation but a group of women from you know the, a local area getting together in a living room rather than and like you said jeremy a meeting or you know with with, with an with an agenda that was outside their own experience and I think that in a sense is 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 quite unique or maybe it's not but I think it bodes thinking about that is an interesting question of like <laughs> how would a, how would a feminist consciousness raising group of the 70s be different from just a group of friends hanging out but also how it would be different from a from a more classical political meeting you know and in the first one it you know it is more it's more purposeful you know there's it's more purposeful than yeah, just meeting yeah it's intentional rather than just meeting you know you perhaps you know with groups of friends you probably do fall into discussing your lives but you know you might actually just enjoy bullshitting and messing about <laughs> etc um so it's an intentional thing you know and they were there probably with quite a lot of freedom about where where this discussion was going to go but with you know specific aims which was to talk about your life but to think about it in terms of of you know structural forces overcoming bourgeois conditioning was something that Mikanavi talked about you know to try and think about like our lives are like this why are they like this you know where what how could they be different is the sort of intentional sort of thing and that's probably the difference between a more or between many you know more formal political meetings is it is it, it starts with the personal, you know, it starts with your own lives and experiences and then moves out from there to how do you change the world, which is different to a sort of campaign sort of group or a classic, you know, cam campaign political meeting. Consciousness, along with righteousness, is the thing which defines uh, Rastafarian reggae and differentiates it from its kind of capitalist, commercial, you know, apolitical uh, antecedents and the things that come after. You know, when after the kind of end of 
uh, Rastafarian is the kind of Rastafarian dominance of Jamaican music. You know, slackness is the kind of ethic of you know, apolitical hedonism, which deliberately rejects righteousness and consciousness. And so, uh, one of the great um, anthems of conscious reggae uh, is Johnny Osborne's Truth and Rights. As far as we know um, from our detailed archive research, the idea of consciousness raising groups came into the women's liberation and to some of the other movements after the publication in 1966 of a book called uh, Fanshen, which was a book uh, written by an American sort of aristocratic sort of Maoist sympathiser called uh, William Hinton. And it was a book about the Chinese Revolution. And he was talking about the Chinese Revolution in the 1940s. And the consciousness-raising groups were, you know, sort of basically Maoist, you know, revolutionary education groups uh, in villages, in sort of revolutionary villages in the 40s. And that idea... Now, that I mean, when we've talked about consciousness-raising, when we started talking about it publicly, you know, sort of acid Corbynism, sort of events and publications, I mean, that was one of the first things we got sort of pushback on, was people being worried that what we were talking about was some sort of scary kind of Maoist you know, political education projects. Of course, of course, Maoism, the sort of Chinese revolu- version of revolutionary communism, you know, it sort of inspired by the leadership of Chairman Mao, you know, became famous for having such a radical anti-individualist perspective that really, you know, anyone who thought of themselves in kind of personal or individual terms at all was considered bourgeois and that you were supposed to just devote your entire life to serving the interests of the collective and everybody was supposed to wear identical clothes. And, you know, you were supposed to engage in these practices of kind of rigorous self-criticism where you got into groups and kind of admitted all your failings as a revolutionary and... And that was what it meant to kind of cultivate uh, revolutionary consciousness, at least by the time of, so Maoism had reached a certain advanced stage in the late 60s. Um, And I think that's not exactly the same as what was going on even in those consciousness raising groups in the 40s, which seemed to have been more, you know, fairly, fairly kind of typical kind of revolutionary education groups. And that would have been in the tradition of kind of Marxist, Leninist, uh, communist revolutionary practice. Now, can I, can I just interject there? Cause yeah, the, please. Yeah, you know the the greatest horror story of how how horrendously bad um, uh, uh, Maoist self criticism sessions can get was the Japanese uh, revolution Re- revolutionary Red Army. I think it was called the Japanese Revolutionary Red Army. There was a great there's a great film about it, and they you know a group of uh, a group of young students who got caught up in the ferment of the of the late 1960s in japan um then they go they decide to go in a sort of uh arm struggle direction go off into the mountains and they basically just criticized each other uh to such a degree that um that they uh, they killed half the group <laughs> as a result of their criticism sessions they would just you know beat them and leave them out into the in the cold um you know you can go too far now. Obviously, we need <laughs> we, we need <laughs> some self criticism, uh, but then, but then again, you know that fell into one of these into these hierarchical cultish sort of dynamics. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it did. Well, as did Maoism generally. 
Yeah. But it, but it, to me, it sounds like Twitter. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. I mean, it sounds like Mao, like Twitter is Maoist in that what what it's trying to achieve, or the, how some of these debates, how some political debates have have been formulated, or how the architecture is built of how of how people discuss things, or how some people discuss things, is this attempt to get someone to break down, and that the only way out is for you to accept all of this criticism, which isn't true. Anyway, that's a side. It's a side point, but I think it's like I think there's a cult about there's a culture of that sharon james and the dap kings a kind of contemporary american sort of cell phone band it's no accident they record they've recorded absolutely the best ever version of of, uh, woody guthrie's this land is your land it's one of the very few recorded um versions which includes all of the verses including the explicitly anti-capitalist verses and i think that as an example of the kind of consistency of that sort of soul tradition as a vehicle for uh, political radicalism so shall we talk about feminist consciousness raising groups? Yes. Okay. So uh, when when was it would would we say that these groups started in 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 London or in the UK? Well, the pivotal year is 1669 is the pivotal year. Okay. So Mika Narva um, is retired now. She was a professor at University of East London uh, for many years. She's very well known as a kind of scholar of cultural studies and consumer culture, but also I kind of, you know, someone who was who was active in women's liberation from very early on. I asked Mika, like, just actually what went on in the groups and how they how they were organised, and she gave a very kind of uh, illuminating answer about that. I went to my first meeting when my youngest kid was about three weeks old, and I took him along in a carry cart. I, I was probably thirty. And where was it? Where it, was the meeting? The meeting was in Tufnell Park, Dave Slaney and Karen Slaney's flat in Dartmouth Park Hill. And it was a really small room and there were about 15 people there. First of all, people felt that they had to meet as women only. And that was a very radical thing, a radical demand, a radical structural difference from all the other political meetings around at the time. And that it had to be a relatively small group. You couldn't have these massive meetings, that everybody should be uh, involved. Everybody should be given a chance, that people shouldn't monopolize meetings. Um, There was no chair. There were no rules. That's why I still can't quite get all the rules in the Labour Party. We agreed things, we would discuss, we somehow or other would have, if there was anything to agree, we would try and do it by consensus rather than any other way. I mean, we were into the personal as, as political, and, there, and that meant that we had to talk about ourselves. I mean, there are a lot of uh, fantasies about what went on in those groups, and I think a lot of and groups were very different. But um, both the first group and my second group had quite a few people with, quite a few women with young children. We talked about issues that, are, you know, things like childbirth, things like equal opportunities, but abortion. I mean, all of those initial issues, sexual division of labour right. uh, and how, and monogamy, marriage. But we, we deliberately focused away from the kind of um, most important issues that we thought had been addressed by the suffragettes, that is to say the vote. And importantly, and this is really one of the most important things about what those groups did, they talked about political ideas, but they were all, they were polemical, but they were also about changing the way we lived. So they were prescriptive in a way, and that was sometimes very stressful. And I remember thinking, God, I can't go on any longer because I'm going to have to change everything. And it's just too much. 
I can't change everything. So it was you mean spe- changing household arrangements. Household arrangements. Work. Giving up all money and possessions. Okay. I mean, there were a few uh, brave communist. households that did that. Others were living together and sharing, or at least sharing a little bit more equally, childcare and child responsibility. I mean, even just helping would, was a kind of improvement. But people did change the way they lived. Absolutely. I think we all share we all share an intuition that there's something in this consciousness raising form and there's something specific to now. Do you know what I mean? There's something specific to the way we live our lives now which seems to seems to make this uh, this this sort of function the function that consciousness raising groups fulfilled in the feminist movement in the 1970s it this it seems to be a need for that and it and it seems to be I think there's probably still a need for it around around feminist politics and issues but it seems to be wider and one way i can sort of think about that is is that like it's the effect of neoliberalism isn't it you know the the consciousness deflation of neoliberalism was to basically remove the the political and make everything make everything into the personal basically neoliberalism's ideology is just everything is personal right so where else could you start then well we have to start from the, if we're going to try and get out of neoliberal ideology we have to start with the personal and find the political in it do you know what i mean uh, so that was one of the ways in which when I started looking at the movements of 2011, you know, Occupy, the 15M, etc., well, what was really noticeable was that these same organisational forms just popped up all around the world, basically. You know, they were all camps in, in city squares, but they were also just doing the same decision-making format, these general assemblies where everybody would uh, use consensus process to come to decisions. But when you look at people when they're, you look at people using them, they seem to be using them for something else. And I think it looks like something that's similar to consciousness raising groups, or at least the first the first function of a consciousness raising group. I've called in, in my Generation Left book, I call it the testimony function, where basically people get up and testify about their lives. Uh, and, you know, they just, you know, I've got this problem. I'm in £30,000 worth of debt. I can't pay it off. And somebody else gets up, you know, and they've got a very similar problem. You start from your personal problems and realise they're not just personal, they're, they're collective, right? But there's several other functions, there's several other functions that need to take place then to turn that into collective action. That, that thing around testimony is important. So whether it comes out in a general assembly with somebody standing up saying, I'm in, you know, £20,000 of debt and I don't know what to do, or whether it's said in a consciousness raising group, like the reason why that's important is the actual utterance of it takes away the power takes away the power from from the thing that is bearing down on somebody's life and and brings it out into the open in 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 the kind of way i guess what am i trying to say i'm trying to say that there's there's a loneliness in those secrets and there's a there's a weight and a heaviness in living in living with that and what consciousness raising does whether it's through the general assemblies or whether it's through you know the women's groups of people the same people meeting over and over again or you know even in the ones that we've done is that that there's a release there's yeah, a yeah. there's a physical embodied um experience of 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 something being being let out and shared which makes which gives people power i think so it's not just about learning actual things where you think, oh, that's an interesting idea. I haven't thought about that before or I haven't thought about looking at the world that way before. It's someone saying something like, 
I feel really claustrophobic at home when I'm doing the dishes and I feel really bored or for someone to say you know I feel anxious all of the time even though my my material conditions are kind of okay and when you're in a consciousness raising group and you're meeting usually if it's someone you know or for someone in in the case of the the groups that that we've been doing um where a lot of people don't know each other I think there has been that thing of like we've had so many people tell us like I've never had this conversation before around the questions that me and Kira are asking. I mean, every single time we do one of these workshops, people come and say, we've never had this discussion before. I've never had that experience before. And that, I think, has transformative potential. Hmm. We, we should explain those groups again, because the, the sort of experiments that we've been running... You know, they're not a classic consciousness raising group because a classic consciousness raising group is, a, is the same group of people meet, you know, week after week and build up this sense of solidarity. And, and what we what we've been doing is is a sort of one offs, one offs where we get a group of people together quite often, you know, uh, perhaps at a political festival or, you know, a particular meeting that's been called or something like that. Yeah, it's self-selecting. It's self-selecting. It's self-selecting, but it, yeah, but it's also people who don't know each other. And I think that that is one of the powerful things <laughs> that people find is that, you know, is that a group of strangers just meet there and, and you know, they're provoked into talking about about their lives and feelings and problems in a in a political context right where they of they're also encouraged to think about how these what 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 structural forces might be linking them together that's quite a strange and unusual thing <laughs> we've reached the limit i think we've we start to spot the limits of that that come with that particular our particular experiment you know that the, the limits of how far you can just get together with a group of strangers, discuss your problems, and then come up with a good map of how the world works. I think we've probably reached the limits of that, but it's not a, it's not a classical consciousness raising group. I think. You know, my experience of the, when we've a couple of times we've done at events, quote unquote, consciousness raisings or workshops. I mean, you know, my experience of those is you know is quite powerful. Is that even though I know, you know, I'm a sort of you know on some levels, on some measures, I'm a sort of world expert on a lot of this stuff, and, and I'm in the room with people, you know, who are not. Then, nonetheless, the exp- that experience of that form of engagement, you know, affects me sort of affectively, sort of in in my body, you know, in in my kind of emotional state, in it, in a way which seems really important, and it seems like well, and I think this is one of, for me, this is one of the kind of basic insights of sort of the acid communist, acid communist project actually or or you know what i've sometimes called psychedelic socialism is that well you can sort of know theoretically conceptually that you know it's a myth to think of yourself as a sort of individual subject in constant competition with others but we but also we all know that the, the the vast apparatus of you know capitalist society is constantly trying to make us feel like that all the time so it's just naive to think you can just kind of liberate yourself from that sense of yourself just by sort of knowing something that you, that we all need to engage in in, in t- types of technique and practice which can enable us to feel to really feel differently than that. And I, to me, I, my understanding of the idea of the consciousness raising group, at least in the liberation movements like women's liberation and gay liberation, is that that's part of the point of it. I think what consciousness raising groups 
can do and I have seen them do is that you force a conversation around stuff where you can't make throwaway comments of like well you know well everyone gets pissed because we have to find a way of dealing with this or um, oh you know the way that it is we're all addicted to our phones or oh well you know what it is you know I guess in like female in, in women's um, consciousness raising groups you'd imagine well you know the way men are like like what are we going to do eh you know there's loads of people who I know who you know are intelligent political people who still operate on a day-to-day basis with this kind of defeatism as if there's no way that they're going to escape their reality or like our reality collectively and the way that that is expressed is through the kind of language and banter that we use um or which kind of which 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 is an, like anti-possibility or anti-futuristic but if you have a consciousness raising group around that then you start you have the space and the intentionality to interrogate that and the same goes not just for women's issues but for issues around capitalism because you're able to say to each other no hold on a second like why are you saying that it's inevitable that the only way that you're going to live is to live for the weekend or like to get absolutely shit-faced because you can't deal with Monday or whatever that's why I think it's important because it's even if it's not just raising consciousness around the fact of like what the reality is it's allowing for the space of the conversation to go somewhere else this notion of consciousness also gets picked up on as you know consciousness meaning politically conscious political consciousness radical consciousness gets picked up on in hip-hop in the 1980s it tends to be a bit of a myth amongst kind of younger hip-hop fans these days that somehow hip-hop starts off as this really radical form and then it gets corrupted it's it's a bit more complicated than that i mean hip-hop really starts off as kind of funk-based sort of party music and then the idea of it as maybe having a kind of revolutionary or socially organizing potential is actually the late 80s and the beginning of the 90s is the kind of high point of sort of hip conscious hip-hop and again probably the one of the most kind of explicit examples kind of musically and lyrically was the the first arrested development album that and this song um, give a man a fish uh, always memorable for the line um, brothers with ak's want to learn how to use them save those rifles for the revolution no just with, with arrested development it's a really inter- it brings up this really interesting problem right of you know what's the relationship relationship between conscious music and realism do you know what i mean so yeah, basically yeah. you know arrested development I don't know if you could say that they're a reaction against uh, gangster rap, but it's but yeah, there's some sort of antagonism there between conscious rap and 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 gangster rap. And gangster rap's whole shtick is, you know, there's the sound from the streets. It's realism, you know. And like, if we look back at what was going on in African American communities at that point, they may have had a point. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're, that 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 perhaps the material conditions for raised consciousness on on a mass level were. We're, we're being diminished at that point you know with it huge... they were they, yeah there's no question there's no question that there's i mean at, the, at that moment of the late 80s early 90s it's the last gasp of black radicalism there's no question the neoliberalization of hip-hop the emergence of gangster it is a reaction to that it's a re, it is an expression on the part of a generation of black youth who don't have the realistic alternative of sort of revolution as a way of responding to their social conditions but at the same time of course the problem with gangster rap and and sort of g-funk in the early 90s which is um you know what dr dre is calling his music for the first couple of years after he releases the chronic is 
it, of course, it, it does present the condition of being the gangster as always and forever. Now, the only thing to which black youth can aspire, and I would, I think that argument in in favour of in favour of sort of gangster rap is defensive. I mean, I just think it's another historical argument, which you know the jury of history is in on it now. I mean, we know where that goes. It just it goes with hip hop just becoming completely capitalist, completely reactionary, and Kanye West eventually endorsing. He's not a gangster rapper, but he's an inheritor of that mainstreamization of hip hop. You know, endorsing Trump. So and and I think it's not it's, there's, it's not an accident that today kind of radical hip hop, you know, people like Boots Riley, uh, Childish Gambino, you know, are quite self consciously differentiating themselves from that. I mean, it's it's really interesting that like those two, Boots Riley and, and Childish Gambino, they are deliberately embracing anti-realism or like no actually it's not anti-realism is it it's surrealism which is you know yeah more than real you, you need to go beyond you know just representing experience to you know some of the forces which are constructing those experiences which is sort of what surrealism is yeah and the TARDIS I mean you know, this is America I mean it really it is doing what gangster rap claims to do it's depicting the reality and the violence of contemporary Afro-American life but in a way which formally clearly doesn't Give, give you you know leave you coming away with the idea that well that's the only way it can be and actually it's quite cool and sexy mm. you know, which is what gangster rap tried to do it's sort of realism but it's sort of you know critical realism it's a sort of yeah. you know what in the you know certain strands of the marxist tradition we call a sort of brechtian sort of critical realism and it's not it totally fits of course with every sort of theory we would probably want to endorse about the relationship between culture and politics that well you know it's not an accident you're suddenly hearing new music again after black lives matter has seen the first significant radicalization yeah, of, yeah, totally. Africa, of black america since you know since that those great defeats of the kind of late 80s and early 90s do you think it would be a useful thing for people to do today? I, uh, yes. I mean, I think what it does is it produces a kind of solidarity and a kind of enduring friendship. And it's sort of a bit... I mean, it overlaps with things like group therapy, of course. Very intense, but it was incredibly, I mean, solid. We also we did things together. We produced plays. We went, uh, we, we, we went to... Wales, we did uh, LSD together, we went to... Good. Yeah, very, you know, <laughs> that's what we like to hear. Yeah. And is there anything that people you think should have been done differently? Well, we look back and it was so naive and so utopian and we really did think we could change the world. There was a kind of... You know, as long as we made people think differently, and it would be quite easy to get people to think differently, because look, we had tra- been transformed by these ideas. And now there's a kind of much deeper pessimism. So I think it was... Yeah, naive in lots of ways. But then perhaps most people look back on their 20s with amazement that they could believe the things that they did. But certainly, I mean, it was an incredibly important part of... I mean, absolutely incredibly important part of my life. I I was a bit lost in London in the 60s, personally, uh, until feminism. And then I thought, yes, we're making history. We definitely are making history. So I, as, as I was listening to the interview, I was thinking, right, what are the barriers to us making this stuff happen? Like, if we agree that it has kind of a revolutionary potential, or at least a potential to get people to 
to see themselves and other people and the potential for change in a different in a different light then then what are the barriers to making that happen and i'm i'm wanting to see and you know i don't think it's same it's the same everywhere around the country i think it would be easier for people to do in places that are are not london but i know for a fact that i have tried both within plan c and you know other experiments of trying to get a group of people together um is 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 almost impossible because of what people lives are like and and the demands on the on their minds not just uh in terms of work and you know anxiety that's created through technology but you know everyone's responsibilities etc which obviously takes away the potential for people to either be reflective or or to be able to especially reflect in in groups the thing that mika spoke about um i think i think she mentioned this which really made me think about spaces where this is where consciousness is raised where i have had an experience where it's not supposed to be deliberate but it ends up being the same thing is things like book clubs i think that that i you know i have had and several people have had uh, that that i've spoken to this this experience of um in political book clubs just again going back to this idea of you've got four you know three or four hours uh, ideally where a group of people are sitting together in a living room that's close to your house is actually seems to be a very revolutionary thing for 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 me maybe it's my experience of life and because i feel um uh, you know, travel and distance and, and being atomized and like every every meeting with someone having to have a purpose and, 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 and being an event that actually a space like a book club allows for the mental space and the bonding around ideas. Um, where even though you're not talking about your own experiences, it, 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 it's got quality to it. Maybe it's just basically people's living rooms. That's what I'm saying. When you do something in somebody's living room, it seems to have a specific power. Maybe it's the biscuits. I don't know. Uh, another uh, recent uh, track is Gregory Porter, kind of jazz singer, did this, did this sort of jazz dance, this sort of jazz house, sort of disco a really powerful kind of dance floor track called 1960 Watt, which is, again, the lyric is an evocation of the uh, Detroit riots in the 1960s, but it's also a deliberate evocation of the fact that the condition of, uh, you know, black people in the American cities now is not significantly better than it was at that time. You know, it does make me think about, we haven't really touched on just the fact that, well... You know, the idea of just, you know, collective experience, collective joy, dance as itself a form of consciousness raising. You know, we we did we had someone at an acid Corbynism event that we were all at that who who said that, you know, coming to one of my parties had made had made her want to join momentum. And there is this sense that well they do fulfil this function, you know, they're kind of dance just dancing together fulfils a certain kind of consciousness raising function in that it you know it, it overcomes the immediate kind of everyday affect, affective sense that being with other people is just a drag and it's just a pain it's just disempowering on the other hand it's uh, it's limited i think the, the historical experience of rave shows that yeah sooner or later you know you probably do have to have, you know probably do have to have people reading books you probably have to have do have you know we probably should at some point we should start having like groups like before the party or something where you actually talk about stuff I mean, I think it, I think it's this comes full circle. It's basically saying eventually you have to sit in living rooms and talk about your own lives with intent, with cups of tea and biscuits. Hi, everybody. This is Matt, one of the editors of ACFM. 
I've come out from behind the laptop and in front of the microphone to tell you about some supplementary material soon to be available for this main episode of ACFM. Both the full audio of the interview with me, Kanava, and a fuller explanation of the history of theories of ideology and political consciousness that were discussed here but that we didn't have space for in this episode will soon be available online somewhere soon. We're not totally sure where this will be. Maybe the main Novara feed or a new supplementary ACFM feed or just out there online somewhere. But if people check out the Acid Corbinism page on Facebook or any of us on social media, We'll put an announcement up there when they're available. All right, play us out, Bernie. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.